Sholem Alechem, welcome to the Shmooz, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Ruth Bahar. Ruth is a Pura Belpre award-winning author of Lucky Broken Girl and Letters from Cuba. She was born in Havana, Cuba, grew up in New York, and has also lived in Spain and Mexico. Ruth's work also includes poetry memoir and the acclaimed travel books, An Island Called Home, and Traveling Heavy, and the forthcoming Across Many Seas. She was the first Latina to win a MacArthur Genius Grant, and other honors include a John Guggenheim Fellowship and being named a great immigrant by the Carnegie Corporation. An anthropology professor at the University of Michigan, she lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Welcome, Ruth. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. This is wonderful. Always good to see you, whether virtually or in person. <laughs> and in this case, to hear you virtually. Um, first off, congratulations on the forthcoming release of Across So Many Seas. I think it's due out very soon. Very soon, February 6th, which happens to be my mother's birthday. <laughs> oh, that's very wonderful. Yeah. And, and and we will explain why in a few minutes when we talk about the book. Um, I'm eager to speak with you about this. And it the book is described as telling the stories of four Sephardic girls from different generations of the same family. Hence uh, why it's nice that this comes out for your mother's birthday. Um, tell me about how you came to write this and maybe also how it does relate to your roots. Absolutely. Well, you know, I am half Sephardic and half Ashkenazi. I'm Ashkenazi on my mother's side and Sephardic on my father's side. So I grew up with both the Yiddish and the Sephardic backgrounds and um, the clashes between them, as well as I could see that between my parents, the cultural clashes. Um, so I grew up with that. And, um, and I was always very intrigued by having that mixed Jewish background that not everybody has. Um, and so always being aware of Jewish diversity within my own family, plus, of course, also being born in Cuba. So there was that mix. And um, and I've been thinking about Sephardic topics for a long time. I made a documentary film about 20 years ago called Adio Querida, where I did research in Cuba and got to know the Sephardic Jews who live in Cuba today. So kind of started there. Um, and I also wrote some poetry about my Sephardic identity. Um, and that was like another connection to it. And then more recently, I've just been doing a lot of reading and research, and there's been kind of this boom, the Sephardic boom taking place lately, and people interested in the Ladino language and people interested in revitalizing this culture. And I've been kind of part of that movement uh, myself. And I wrote a picture book not too long ago called Tia Fortuna's New Home, where I kind of started thinking about how to write about Sephardic topics for kids. And then I had the idea for this novel um, in part because I'm really interested in understanding 1492 and what was it like when the Sephardic Jews were expelled from Spain. I've been intrigued by that for a long time and was doing a lot of reading about medieval Spain and 15th century Spain. So that was a big part of the inspiration. And then the other part was my paternal grandmother who has this very interesting and mysterious story of why she was sent from Turkey to Cuba. So all, all of that somehow came together in my mind and I and I started writing this novel and started thinking of how could I how could I tell this story from different perspectives and sort of came up with the idea of the different generations in each generation a different girl thinking about her identity and who she is as a Sephardic Jew. You know it's one of the things that I've seen since I've been at the Yiddish Book Center is the fact that we're now at a 
a place where there are three and four generations in a family all having different interactions. Um, so I think this is such an interesting way of exploring something because the opportunity to understand a culture and your family history, I think, is much I don't want to use the word easier, um, but more readily available. And before I get into that a little bit with you, I also wanted to ask you, um, I also think the Sephardic Jewish experience may be less familiar to most, that it's becoming m more in a conversation, or else I'm very Ashkenazic-centric uh, <laughs> in my East Coast upbringing. Um, I wondered what your thoughts are um, about this Uh in terms of how this threads through the larger story of Jewish culture? Yeah, well, I think we've become a lot more aware of Jewish diversity in, say, the last 20 years or so. I think we had a very Ashkenazi kind of model of the Jewish world. Um, and in, in many ways, for various reasons, I don't know if there just wasn't as, as much writing and literature and artistic and cultural work out there by Sephardic Jews, or it just didn't get somehow the attention of, of the Ashkenazi work. Um, but it just took a while, I think, for Sephardic culture and heritage to, to sort of be a little bit more mainstreamed than, than it had been before. And there's just a little bit more understanding, I think, of Jewish diasporas, you know, to begin with. I think we had this idea the Jews were in Israel, the United States, and, and they started out in Poland and kind of like that was it, you know. And, um, and that was kind of the general model of, you know, of Jewish identity and culture. And we had a limited view of the Jewish map, I think, as well. And, um, and I think in recent years, we've become certainly aware of Jewish Latin America, that of course there's a huge Jewish community in Argentina, for example, also in Mexico. Um, and um, other places in Latin America, of course, in Cuba, there was an important Jewish uh, Cuban community that then migrated to the United States and kind of recreated itself in the United States. I think we've, our map has kind of expanded. We're kind of aware that there have been Jewish people living all over the world, and there's just much more interest in understanding that, that diversity and what it means, what this diaspora means, all the places where Jewish people um, have lived. And I think you know, I've been part of part of that um, part of that kind of awareness, I guess, of of Jewish diversity and and um, and kind of the depth of our experience as Jewish people living in different parts of the world. Um, and I think that's fascinating. You know, there's a Yiddish literature in Argentina, right? That's that's you know very different from the Jewish uh, Yiddish literature, say in New York, right? And and I think just like being aware of that, there was some Yiddish literature even in Cuba, much smaller because it was a smaller community, but it was there. Um, and I feel that with Sephardic Jews, it just kind of took a while for uh, for that culture to be known. Um, and I think for many reasons, but um, but I think now now there's kind of a place for us. There's a place for this culture, and there's a, a desire to know more about this culture, both by Sephardim and and those you know, outside of the community as well. Your background is uh, anthropology, as a professor of anthropology. Um, and I wonder in researching and writing the, the novel, um, sort of how you grasped or grappled with that. And mm -hmm. also you're telling a story that relates to family. And, you know, I, I read that you've noted that you had little material to work with. I had only a vague idea of how my Sephardic grandmother made her way alone from Turkey to Cuba in the 1920s, bringing in... Um, an oud. An oud. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, an oud. <laughs> an oud. <laughs> uh, with which to accompany her singing. Um, 
Uh, and then you further write, I knew I wanted to merge these two stories, but wasn't sure how it would all come together. How was it to explore this from all these different angles? Oh, well, it was exciting and, you know, and a little scary. I was like, it was a challenge for me. I had never written a novel from four perspectives, you know, four points of view. So that was a challenge. Could I do this? How would these stories come together or not? So I worried about that. And this whole connection between anthropology and family is something I've been exploring for much of my career. I'm, I'm an anthropologist who writes very personally. And I started doing that a while ago. I wrote a book called The Vulnerable Observer, and I've been interested in vulnerability and the vulnerability of the anthropologist and the people being studied and the vulnerability of the anthropologist herself as well. Um, so I've been very interested in the role of the emotions, the role of the personal voice. So those are things I've been thinking about for a long time. And then about 10 years ago, I, you know, I came, started coming to fiction and thinking that I wanted to tell some of these stories about culture and heritage and identity, which I had told as an anthropologist, I wanted to find a way to tell them via fiction and specifically for young people, because these stories aren't readily available um, for young people. Sephardic stories, very few and Jewish Latin American or Jewish Cuban stories, of course, hardly at all. And so I kind of like just set myself out, set, decided that this was a challenge that I wanted to to meet and um and so like with anthropology you can go so far with your research you can talk to people you can do interviews you can observe rituals there are all of these things that you can do empirically but then there's also limits to what you can know um and that's what i discovered with my grandmother there were limits to what i can know there were limits to what my family knew about her there were, you know i didn't ask her the right questions when i was a teenager which is when she was still alive and so there's just much i didn't know and i feel that my going into fiction has been a way of kind of filling in the gaps you know of what i don't know historically or ethnographically filling in those gaps um, with the imagination so with my grandmother like you said i know that she had an oud and i always heard about this oud you know this this beautiful instrument that's like a lute um, and it's, you know, played a lot in Turkey and women were taught the, the oud in that generation in the 1920s. And so I was so fascinated that she played a middle, you know, a musical instrument, the, the oud, and it's a, such a beautiful instrument and that she sang songs in Ladino and that she arrived in Cuba kind of mysteriously, her parents sent her. And, um, and we think that she was sent on an arranged marriage and then the person she was supposed to marry had married someone else by the time she got there. And she, so she lived with an uncle, but she played the oud and that was what attracted my grandfather to her. So there's this whole interesting romantic story, but that was all, all we knew. And we know that she never saw her parents again in Turkey. They never came to Cuba and she never went back to Turkey, when I asked my aunt Fani, my father's younger sister, well, did you know anything more? Did you ask her questions? And she said, oh, no, 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 we never asked her questions because that would have been disrespectful. So you weren't supposed to go like beyond what you knew that would have been pushing things too much. So so that's all we knew. And so I had to embroider <laughs> upon that, that that story. I had to kind of embroider and just like, you know, from my memories of her and just imagining, you know, what might have happened. You know, the story I embroidered is not her story, but just kind of embroidering upon those those that I had and and uh, but I have been because I've spent a lot of time going back and forth to Cuba I have been in the apartment where she and my grandfather lived and where my father lived where the four children lived and the four kids that she had were all born in that apartment in Havana that faces the sea and that looks out 
at the port of Havana. So I did get to see that. And I actually went to Turkey as well to see where she had lived in Silivri, this town near Istanbul. So I kind of did my anthropology in the sense of going to the places and getting a feel for the places that I was writing about. So I think that that was kind of an important anchor for me that I think a lot of anthro a lot of writers write about places without visiting them. But I couldn't have imagined that I had to go to the places. So maybe that part of me being anthropologist is still very much present. Yeah, there was something I wanted to ask you about having read your work before, that place is so central, it's probably a silly word to put attached to it, is so central to your writing, both springing from a sense of place and going back to place and how it informs so much. Um, and uh, I wonder when you are were in that place, when you're describing the, being in the apartment, do you get, a, you get a sense of what that place was like, what the views were like? What do you think your grandmother would have made of your telling the story? She probably wouldn't like the story that I wove <laughs> for her. I tried to imagine her a little younger uh, than she was when she arrived in Cuba. So, so she's 12 in this version. I'm not sure she would have liked it. I think she would have liked parts of the story. I had her, she did, she did have two sisters. So I have two sisters in the story. Um, and I think she might've liked that part of it. She might not have liked, you know, cause I, I don't know how much I should tell about the story, but but I wove this friendship with a Muslim boy um, who lived like basically was a next door neighbor to her and her family, um, to my character, Reina, and that they just had this very nice friendship because they had grown up sharing the same courtyard and playing there together. But then a, a point came where her father said, I don't want you playing with them anymore. You're 12 and, you know, soon you're going to be getting married. And, you know, we, we have to maintain, a, you know, a good reputation for you. So you can't be just playing with boys, you know, you're entering this other phase of your life and so on. And, um, and so that's something that, that, you know, that I decided would be part of her story of my fictional um, Reina. Um, so, so I don't know what she would have thought of that. I, I, I wish I could have that conversation with her. Now I'm going to see what my father, <laughs> what my father thinks of it and what my aunt uh, think of it, uh, the, the children of my grandmother, and then I'll see what my mother says. But, you know, I always tell them this is fiction. So if you don't like it, don't worry, this didn't happen. This is the way I'm imagining that it could have happened. And just circling back to place for just a second, you must go with a certain expectation of place and then to stand in it. How does that change for you both as an anthropologist and a writer and just your connection to it? Yeah, I love that question. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I love places and I love returning to the same places over and over. I don't get tired of returning to those places in Havana, like, you know, like where my father lived, I'll, I'll go there every time I go to Cuba, and I've been to Cuba, maybe, you know, 50 times over the last 30 years, I always go back to that place, I go back to the place where my mother lived, I have to walk on those streets again, I go back to the to the building, where I lived in Havana, in the more modern part of Havana, um, I go back to the same places over and over and over. <laughs> and, and I wish I could go back to Turkey as often as I've been to, to Cuba, but that's a little more complicated. Um, so I haven't done that. But in Spain, I worked in a small village and I've been back to that village also numerous times. I like going back to those places. They're not places where I stay forever, um, but they're places that I keep going back to. I don't tire of them. There's something about I don't know, there's a kind of energy in those places that I guess I want to 
in some way tap into every time I go. And so if I go back to my father's building, it's like, oh my God, this is, this is where my father was a child. You know, this is where he took his first steps. There's something so amazing about it. This is, this is the, the apartment where my grandparents, you know, settled after being in, you know, after coming from Turkey and marrying, I don't know, there's just something, there's an incredible, yeah, power, I don't magic about these places and just going back to them is just, powerful for me, even if I've already written about them, even if I'm never going to write about them again, <laughs> they, they still, there's still something I need. There's some energy that's there that I want to, want to, you know, gather every time I go. <laughs> it's really interesting. I mean, I think I could go on asking you questions about place because I realize, uh, yeah, how much it figures in all of our lives in different ways, those places and how we're attached to them. Um, and also, uh, you know, being a, a people of a diaspora, um, what that's like not to be able to return to a place or, you know, finding your way to a new one. Um, so the book is a novel and it's really geared towards not just, uh, um, adult, but also middle grade. Is that correct? Um, yes. It's, yeah. it's a middle grade novel. What's amazing about it is a 10 year old can read it. Um, so it's like a 10 year old can sit down and read my book. And I'm, I get very excited when I see kids like actually like reading word by word, God, they're reading this book, um, you know, having been a college professor, you know, so many years of my life. And it's just sort of exciting that a 10 year old could read it. and they're amazing readers, you know, they will really read and analyze and ask you about like, why did you write the sentence this way? You know, and I love that. I love that it's that meticulous attention to language. Um, so yeah, so the book is, is a middle grade novel, but I'm hoping that it has some crossover appeal because of the Sephardic topic, because of the multiple points of view, the topic of multi-generational identity. I'm hoping that it's the kind of book that people, adults or people of any age um, will want to read and enjoy. Maybe, you know, families will read it together. Um, that was my hope. Um, I tried to write it that way. It's, it's a meant to be a very poetic book as well. Poetry figures in the book, poetry and song are very important uh, to the story. So I'm hoping that those things will also just be of interest to all kinds of readers. That's, that's, that was my dream. Um, well, thank you again for your work and for joining me today. Um, and for our listeners, the book is Across Many Seas. It will be available in February, 2024. Uh, hopefully you can hop on to shop.yiddishbookcenter.org and find it, as well as many other bookstores. Um, Ruth, as always, it's a pleasure to have you. I hope to see you at the center. Um, I believe you're here in April. Yes. April for a program with uh, Marjorie Agosian. And you can uh, check out Yiddish a Global Culture, our new exhibition, which touches on a lot of what we talked about today in terms of all the different spots. And again, Across Many Seas, um, absolutely read it, get it. And thanks again for everything you bring to your work. Thank you, Lisa. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Elizabeth Carteropoli. Until next time, be well and be healthy.